Welcome to Reconciled Church Miami, Pastor Aldo Leon. We are starting a new series called Reformed More Than a Word. Is there like a cool picture? No? No cool picture? Come on, man. Uh, so let me explain what that means. Uh, reform, let me break it down very simply. It means that we're going back to the scriptures and we're getting away from traditions like it has happened many times in the church, and we're going back to the scriptures which teach us about what the gospel is, how central it is, how important it is. So if you could say, well, you, say well, you guys go to Reformed Church, what does that mean? That means that we're going back to the gospel over and over and over and over again because the church is always losing the gospel, and the gospel must be recaptured over and over again. So after I say that, like, okay, reform means we're going back to the gospel, what does that mean? What we're going to do is we're going to lay layer after layer after layer of what it means to say reforms. Uh, we're going to build it by these biblical pieces that all are together. And for the first time, we're going to do small groups that are based on um, the preaching, so as we go through, like, stuff here that's like, man, like, I never heard that or, like, I didn't hear it in that way and, like, I'm offended, we're going to break it down more in depth in the small group. So I would encourage you to be here so you can get all the pieces and be able to uh, engage in the conversations that come afterwards when we break down these things. So here's the first piece. When you think of what does it mean to say our church has a flavor of reform? It means that we are about the redemptive historical narrative of Christ crucified. You say the first, and, and if you don't, this layer is a foundational layer to everything else. So what does it mean? It means that we are about seeing the scriptures and life in light of the fact that God has redeemed sinners in history. Okay? So we are about... Reform means what? We are about the fact that God has, in the Bible, shown us a story of redemption in history that we can believe and live our lives in light of. So let me pray right now for the Holy Spirit to enable us to understand things that we could never understand in ourselves. Father, we come here because we need to understand this foundational layer that you redeem sinners in history and this is a layer for every other layer. And this is the background to everything. God, if we don't get the fact that redeeming sinners in history is the main thing that is at the center of everything, God, we just can't understand anything right. So, Holy Spirit, you are the teacher. You are the quickener. You are the convictor. You are the renovator. So, please... Shake us out of our stupor and our complacency to think that we know you enough already and that we don't need to hear this word now already, Lord God. Please help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, okay, so I, I see what you're saying. Reform means we're going back to the gospel and the scriptures. And then there's a layer that's important, redemptive historical, which means God's work of salvation accomplished in history. But the second thing I want to ask and answer is, okay, what does that mean? What is redemptive in history? What does God's salvation in history mean? Can you, can you, can you help me understand that, Pastor? Please. All right. First piece of what it means to be seeing the scriptures from a redemptive historical framework. First, it means that it, the redemptive work of Christ in history has an eternal priority, an eternal priority. Listen to the verse in Ephesians 1.9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he planned in him for the administration of the days of fulfillment to bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and on earth in him. So basically, Paul is saying in Ephesians that it was God's eternal plan to save sinners. Salvation was not plan B after plan A didn't work out. You understand me? Now, you know when you, when, when, you, when, you, when you go to do something else originally and it doesn't work out and then you end up kind of changing the plan, what does that mean? If you had, so if you, if, if you go to do something and then it changes later, it means that your original plan wasn't that important, right? You found something 
better later, correct? Well, guys, God saving sinners in Christ, in history, was not a, you know, like, I really want to make a, I really want to make a happy world, and it didn't work out, and, you know, I can guys, the gospel, God saving sinners in history, in Christ, was God's plan A. You follow me? It was his plan A. And you said, okay, great. Well, what, what does that mean? That means that if God, if, if God saving sinners in history was God's plan A, then what cannot be our plan A's? Having more people cannot be our plan A. Self-improvement cannot be our plan A. Um, you know, having a nicer facility, you know, getting physically fit, or, you know, having nice programs can't be our plan A. Why? Because what was God's plan A? Salvation in what Christ does in history. So how does this break down to you guys personally? Man, I need to get out of that stinking spotlight. Blinding. You, you, you guys want to spend so much time thinking about how bad your past was, right? And you want to feel guilty about your past. But if the purpose of God was to save sinners from their sins, then what does that mean about your wretched past? <laughs> that it was God's eternal plan to get, uh, allow you to have a really bad past so that when he saves you, it will be glorious. Hallelujah. Or some of you are like so concerned over certain sin issues you have, and you're so bothered by certain sin issues that you have, and, and you're like, man, I wish I didn't have this sin issue. I wish I didn't have this problem. But if God's eternal was to save sinners from their sins, how do you see your ongoing sin problems? Not as to become frustrated. Bring them into the salvation that God promised in all eternity. Or, you know, like, we're always so bent on trying to avoid broken situations and broken people, right? We always want to just be in the happy places. But if God's eternal purpose was to save sinners from wretchedness, then why would we think that we need to avoid wretched situations? So, look, redemptive historical means that God's salvation has an eternal purpose. Priority. It wasn't like another plan that God kind of then like said, all right, maybe like I think another one. It was always in God's mind that he would glorify himself through saving us through what Christ does in history. So firstly, redemptive historical means it has an eternal priority. Secondly, it means that it has an immediate place, an immediate place. Genesis 3.15, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed he will strike you in the head, and you will strike his heel. Is Genesis 3, is that early in the Bible or late in the Bible? So the gospel not only was God's eternal priority, but he then introduces this, this plan from the very beginning of the Bible. Now, if something is your main plan, but you kind of wait a long time to talk about it, it's really not that important, right? So if I, come, if, I, if I were to come to Miami to plant a church, which I did, I don't know, crazy thing, you know, and I spent the first two years just focusing on other things, what would I be telling you? If God had an eternal plan to save sinners by his crucified, resurrected son, and he spent most of history or most of the Bible just kind of focusing on other things, what would that tell us? That it's not that important. But chapter 3 of the Bible, salvation in Christ. It was God's not only eternal agenda, but it was immediately put into place. So what does this mean for us? When we as a church deal with things, where do we immediately go? Come on, some car participation here. We go to the gospel. We don't try other things and our own efforts and achievements and say, let's go to the gospel later. If God's eternal plan was to save us and he initiates it right away, we right away go to the gospel always. Or, you know, like when you have issues in the house with your parents, with your kids, wives, you have issues with your husbands, what's the first place you go? 
Yeah, that's the place you should go. As opposed to like, all right, let me try guilting. Let me try shaming. Let me try ignoring. Let me try cajoling. Let me try threatening. No, no. God goes to salvation in Christ first so that we can always go to salvation in Christ first. It's the first place we go. You follow me? So it has an eternal agenda. It's the immediate agenda, but it's also the biblical agenda, part three, the biblical agenda. Let me uh, get some hydration and read these verses. Listen to this. Luke 24, verse 26. And this is going to be different, you guys. Um, This series, we're going to be jumping around from text. We're not going to read one text. That'll be be different for you guys. It's called uh, more topical. So listen, verse 26. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in the scripture. Did you catch that? What's, Moses wrote what? The first five books of the Bible. So God, Jesus is, is doing Bible school with his disciples. And he says, look, let me show you how the whole Bible is about me. Okay? First text. Second text in Luke 24, 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he also said to them, this is what is written. This is your seminary class Bible student. What's written in the Bible? That the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. Now, you guys know the difference between an encyclopedia? And let me just, before I say difference, what is encyclopedia? Encyclopedia is a bunch of facts about things that are just kind of not related, Right? Newspaper is a bunch of events that happen that are not really related, right? But what is a kid's book like that tells a story? It's not a bunch of unrelated facts that are next to each other. It is one single story. Okay, guys, what Jesus is saying is that the whole Bible is a story about what I have would do and did do and what it will accomplish. You follow me? So listen, we have a tendency, but we have a tendency to see the Bible like an encyclopedia. You know? Oh, there's like the laws. There's something over there. And there's like speaking in tongues. And there is like wisdom literature and advice. And there is like parenting. And there is marriage. And there is kind of like, you know, physical blessing. And there is uh, uh, advice. And there is, you know, nice examples. And we kind of see the Bible like an encyclopedia. But Jesus saying the Bible is not an encyclopedia. Law, tongues, all these things, advice, proverbs, miracles are all a part of one story. If you don't see the main story and all these things you're trying to separate, you just don't get it. You follow me? All the books, all the commands, all the characters, every single thing in the whole Bible is a part of one story about salvation in Christ. Genesis to Revelation. Okay? Um, So we can only understand all the parts if you understand all the parts in light of the main story. (laughs) Can you imagine enjoying your best friend or your parents if it was only in parts? It's kind of gross, but can you imagine, like, this is all you deal with her? And this is all you deal Like, you could not enjoy someone that way. You need to see everything at once, right? <laughs> Guys, the Bible's the same way. When we try to relate to God like this, Okay, with like pieces, and we're not seeing the whole story. We just, we're not, we're not transformed. We're not delighted. There's not fear. There's not wonder. There's not this all. Why? Because we've separated the parts of Jesus into these isolated things, and we can't see the beautiful picture of the story. We can't do that, though, beloved. Same thing. We can't enjoy the seminal theater if I'm just like, all right, right here. I'm going to enjoy this column. Can't do that. But we do that with the Bible. Cut and paste. You know, like everyone, ha- like, you know, the Bible's about social justice. Or the Bible's about miracles. Or the Bible's about, no, the Bible and all these things is about the glory of the gospel. Hallelujah. 
And so all those parts got to be a part of that story. Otherwise, we get lost. Guys, let me ask you a question. What is the main agenda in your home? Is the main agenda in your home to bring your family into the story? Or are you just all in the parts? All about, you know, behavior modification. And all about successful living. And all about, like, healthy living. And, you know, like, you just, do you live this life? Like, look, we have all these parts, and they're great, and they have a purpose. But this house, this family, this home is about God's biblical agenda, which is saving sinners in Christ. And all the details are absorbed in that. So firstly, it's eternal. Redemption in Christ is eternal. It's immediate, and it's the biblical agenda, the one biblical agenda. And I'm going to keep building on that. And next part of redemptive historical, which is a central part of Reformed, is it has a personal emphasis, a personal emphasis. Let me read John 5, 39. You pour over the scriptures. This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. You know what Jesus is saying? You think think you're saved because you know the commands of the Bible. You, you You can recite what you're supposed to do, and you can recite all those facts, and you think you're all right. This is Jesus saying. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, yet they testify about me. And you're not willing to come to me so you may have life. Have you ever been to a basketball or baseball game? Anybody here? Okay. In the baseball or basketball game, a lot of stuff happens, right? You can have snacks. You can have drinks. You can go to the bathroom. You can buy souvenirs. But what is the point of the game? The game. The athletes performing for you. Wow, this is like a hard question, right? <laughs> but what, ha- what, what happens when, when the ball game becomes about all- the food and nothing else? It becomes a restaurant. What happens when it comes just about the souvenirs? It becomes just a mall, right? Check this out. We oftentimes see the Bible as a launch pad for us to be the subject of the Bible and Christ is just an object in our story. So, for example, what does that look like? Um, Joshua, it's all about me knocking down my walls. Come on, man. Feel the satire there. Moses, it's all about me climbing the mountain. Hallelujah. David, is all about me slaying my Goliath. Woo-ha. Jesus' life is all about me imitating it and him just saying, aren't you so great at imitating me? The Holy Spirit's all about me being fruitful. Not about his fruits, my fruits, as I draw attention to me. Jesus' miracles are all about how I can be miraculous. You know? But guys, Jesus is saying that the whole Bible is about me as a subject and I get to bring you into my story. You're not the point. And that's what's awesome about the Bible because the reason why my life is so screwed up is because I'm always trying to make me the point and I'm always trying to make God a character in my story and God's saying, look, I love you so much. I rescue you from your pathetic stories and I bring you into this wonderful triumphant story of salvation that's all about Christ so you can enjoy Christ. We're supposed to go to basketball games and baseball games so we can enter into someone else's triumphant performance, not so we can take selfies and eat food. And so we cut ourselves off from the powerful presence of the personal Christ who personally makes his glory known as being the subject by spending all our time in the Bible taking selfies. And looking for every place in the Bible, Jesus, how can you make me the main character of your story? And how can you be on team me? No, no, no. Jesus says all the Bible is about Christ. You know, there was a lady, uh, a lady from Agape. And she was talking and and, and she she, she heard me uh, preach to Hosea. You know what I did did in Hosea? 
I didn't preach about, oh, this is how you can have a great marriage when your wife is unfaithful. I, I preached, this is how Christ saves unfaithful people. And she was like, I have never, what did she say, Pat? I have never seen Jesus to be so personally real to me. Like everything I always hear oftentimes, Jesus does. And, and, and I'm like, yes, because when, when we preach the Bible as Christ as a subject, we really get to encounter Jesus. And he doesn't become this abstract kind of equipper, enabler, kind of, you know, coach. He becomes an incarnate, bloody, tangible, sick. We can know because he becomes a subject. And we become just the object. So it has a personal emphasis. Another piece. I have, let's see where I'm going. I have one, two, I have four more pieces. They're all important. So it means it has a personal emphasis going on. It means that it has, again, what does redemptive historical mean? It has a fulfillment framework, a fulfillment framework. Colossians 2.16 says this, Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what is to come the substance is the Messiah. So this is what was going on in the Apostles Paul time. They're like, let's go back and celebrate the Jewish festivals. Let's go back and celebrate the Sabbath. Let's go back and celebrate all this stuff. And Paul is saying, like, all those festivals and feasts were signs pointing to Christ. And now Christ is here. You don't need to go back to the signs. You follow me? Okay, so what, what is the purpose of signs? Signs just really gets you to the arrival of the place you're going, correct? That's their purpose. Once you get to Key West, you don't need more signs that say 20 miles more to Key West. You're there. Beloved, the problem is, is that we see the Bible as if Jesus is just another signpost to something else. So we're going on our journey in Christianity, and here's Jesus. And after we meet Jesus, there's another sign going somewhere else. But what this text is saying and what we're learning about what it means to be reformed and being about redemptive history is that once we get to Christ, that's it. There's no more signs. It's not like, all right, I made it to Jesus land. I get it. Now what? No, that's it. That's it. Like, really? Is that it? Yes. That means there's no more temple because he is a temple. There's no more sacrifices because he is a sacrifice. There's no more priests and, and all this because he is our priest. There's no more kings because he is our king. He is a true Moses who comes before God and goes down. He is a true David who is our king and ruler and conqueror. He is a true Joshua who knocks down the walls of sin, death, hell, and the devil. He is our true Passover. He is our scapegoat. He is our last Adam. He is it. There's nothing else. He is the mercy seat. He is a living water. He is the resurrection. He is the true Job. He is it's, it's not Jesus, and then what's next? And beloved, you know what happens when we're always, let me give you an illustration that may help. You know what happens when we're always traveling to the next thing because we're going to the next sign? What happens? You're exhausted. When you're always traveling and you never find a place to stay, you're tired, right? Beloved, you know why you guys are so tired so often? It's because you're always traveling to the next significant thing. And Jesus is telling you right now that if you found me, you have found the place to plant yourself and rest and swim and live forever. There's no other place to go. Stop traveling. Stop looking for the next thing. That's it. He is the fulfillment. That's how we see the scriptures. Man, you don't got to go on map quests no more, spiritual map quests no more. You don't got to see how much funds you can get to go here. If you have found Christ in the scriptures, you have found it, the it. So it has a fulfillment framework. Three more things. It also means that it has an exclusive claim, an exclusive claim. I'm going to go back to Luke 24. Listen. 
<clears throat> then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he also said to them, listen, listen, listen very carefully to the, to the pronoun. This is what is written. You see that? Jesus doesn't say, these are one of the things that is written. It says, this is what is written. What is the thing that the scriptures teach primarily? Where am I at? That the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations began Jerusalem. So what is it that the scriptures say that salvation is available through trusting in Christ for every nation, every person, every tongue? That's what, that's, that's what the scriptures say. They're about salvation. Here's another scripture. 2 Timothy 3.15. Listen. And you know from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to what? What do the scriptures enable us to do? Which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. What do the scriptures enable you to, to understand? Salvation through faith in, faith in Jesus Christ. So let me give you an example of water. Water has a lot of effects, right? It can cool you off. I pour this on my head and cool me off, right? You want me to do it? Kids, you want me to pour water on my head? No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'll do it later, not now. Um, does that mean... Sorry. Um, it can have calming effects. You know, when you have water pouring, it's like, ah, oh, it's so calming. Water pouring. And, you know, it can have uh, cleaning effects. You know, like you got some, you know, pour a little water on here and you can clean. But listen, what is the purpose of water? You need to drink it or you die. It's great that it, you can wash with it. It's great that you can calm yourself with it. It's great that you can clean things with it. But at the end of the day, water is to save you from not dehydrating and dying. Okay? So listen, what am I going to bring this up? Does, is it true that the Bible is about being a better person? Well, I, I think it could function that way. Is it true that the Bible is has some element of giving me physical blessings. I would say there's some truth to that. There's some use to that or, you know, successful living or having, you know, better families and, and having, you know, I don't know, having more spirituality and whatnot or, you know, making the world better. Like, yes, there is some element that, that the Bible has that as a use. But listen, that's not the main thing. The main point of the whole Bible is that sinners need to be rescued from their sins, from their righteousness, because our righteousness is not good enough to save us, it damns us, from our sins, from death, from hell, from the wrath of God, from his justice, from lostness, from spiritual death, from the devil. That's what the Bible is about, beloved. It's about us needing to be saved from God, for God, to God. Okay? You know, and, and, and once we understand that that central message of the Bible is that God needs to save me from me, you know what happens? Our families begin to be changed. Our lives become, become more fruitful. Our lives can even potentially become more successful, but that's not the point. It's a byproduct. I, I use illustration all the time. Can I do it, can I do it again? Guys, we make the Bible like Jesus is like God the Father and Jesus and the whole, they're, they're like some plumbers, you know, or they're like electricians. Like, you know, like, all right, all right, I see, you know, your TV's not working, you know, TV's working and that's your family life. And I see that your self-esteem is kind of low, so like, let me plumber style stuff, you know. But, but what happens when someone fixes your plumbing and someone fixes electricity? What, what, what do you do? You say, thank you so much. I appreciate it. You don't worship that guy. It's just so small. But, but if Jesus is not someone who fixes these small details, but he's someone who, like, rescues you from, like, stage 80,000 cancer or, like, a tsunami earthquake that's about to... If he saves you from that, how do you respond to someone who saves you from that? I love you. What do you want from me? I have joy. Man, I've been saved from something colossal. Wow, I have humility. 
But if it's all about smaller things, oh, fix this, tweak this, you know what happens? We become so small and so shallow so quickly. Why? Because we have taken this wonderful message of God rescuing us from ourselves and from God's holy wrath by the cross of Christ and his perfect life, and we make the Bible and God just to be some electrician who makes our cable nicer. And that's boring. It's boring. It's always like, all right, God, you fixed my cable, and I want you to fix like this. But, man, when we come to the reality that the, 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 that the gospel is about God saving us from some colossally massive thing, man, lives begin to change. Stuff changes. And, beloved, I think that the reason why so many of us, are st- we don't think God is working in our lives, you know why? It's because we're using the water of the gospel to clean our, cou- uh, clean our counters to cool our heads and not drink it to be rescued from your massive spiritual lack of hydration. Because that's what its primary purpose is. So two more things, okay? It has, so what I just said was it has an exclusive claim to be about salvation, primarily. It means that it has a historic, listen to me, a historic preference, a historic Preference. I'm going to read three verses for you to, to, to show that. Genesis 15, 7. He said to him, I am Yahweh, I'm God, who what? Brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. I am God who did something in history. Number one. Number two verse. Exodus 22. I am the Lord your God, who what? Brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Who am I? Someone who did a rescuing work in time, in history. Okay? Revelation 1.17. When I saw him, Christ, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. Why not be afraid, Jesus? I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead history, but look, I am alive forevermore and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. Have you ever met the, uh, the person, the, uh, the remember when person? You know the remember when person? The person who like, look, they're like, if you want to know me, you can't look at me now. You got to remember what I did when I was in high school as an athlete. You know that person? The key to understanding that person in the presence is understanding what they achieved in the past, okay? Now, that's not obviously a good framework for us, but it is for God. God is saying, you want to connect with me? You know, you know man, guys, our, our, our Christian culture, everyone's like looking for Jesus, and I want Jesus, and I want more Jesus. Jesus, where are you? You know, and, and, and God is saying that the place that you meet Christ is in the past where he accomplished a historic work to redeem you from your sins by obeying for you, by dying for all of your sins, ugly ones, big ones, regular ones, past, present, and future, and being resurrected from the dead bodily and then becoming your priest. God's like, that's where you meet me. You know what that means? That God's not meeting you in your heart. You know what I'm saying? How does God meet you in your heart? By you going back to the work of salvation and history that engaged your heart, but it's not in your heart by itself. You, guys, you, know, you know where you guys look for Jesus? You look for Jesus and how your spouse treats you. You're thinking, God, I want an intimate encounter with you based upon how I'm treated by my spouse. And God's like, you're not going to find me there. Or you're looking at, you know, you know, maybe, you know, talk to the young kids. You think, man, I, I feel like I'll experience God's presence based upon how cool I am. And how popular I can be and how, you know, all the people can like me. And God's like, you're not going to meet me there either. Or some of us are thinking, like, you know, if my body was different, maybe if my past wasn't so bad, or maybe if my present, maybe if I didn't have this boring, dead-end, low-paying job, I would, and God's like, you're not going to find me and me changing all those things, even though that's where we're always looking for him. 
God's like, you want to meet me? You meet me in the cross of Golgotha where I spread my arms for you. I died for you. I opened the gateway of heaven and earth and embraced you as my child forevermore and canceled out all your debts and made you an heir of heaven. That's where you meet me always. Beloved, life's always changing. Situations are always changing. But the cross never changes. God's accomplishments and history never change. So you can always meet God there. That is what it means when I say it has a historic preference. Let me read a text that would help. Hebrews 10, 19. Hebrews 10, 19 says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary. What's a sanctuary? It's where God is. It's a holy place where God is. We have boldness to enter to the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. You hear that, beloved? How do I get to encounter God? It is through his work of the cross in history that I see, that I believe, that I get to enter into the, God, the presence of God and know him. Let me read some more. He has inaugurated for us a new and living way that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. You know where the cross is a place where you meet God? Let me ask you a question. Why, why do you avoid people? Because you don't think they're for you, right? You think that they're against you, right? You're like, man, I, want, I don't want to be around that person. Like, they don't like me or like, I don't know what they feel about me. So what enables you to be close to them is when you know that they're for you. So let me ask you a question. How on earth are you going to want to pursue intimately a God who is holy, 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 and will condemn a sinner to hell forever for, sim- for one simple, simple thought. How, do you, how are you going to want to be next to that person? It's through the cross of Christ where God says to you every moment of your day, I lived enough for you to come to me, and I died for every wretched thing that you thought, said, or done, past, present, future, and I was raised triumphant so that now you have no reason to not pursue me. None. But if we're trying to relate to God based upon our efforts and our submission and our power and our morality and our achievements and our family and all this, we will never enjoy his sweetness of communion. But when we see that the curtain of, of, the, of, of the flesh of the work of Christ for me in history gives me an open doorway to God all the time, I'm there all the time. So it has a historic preference in the presence. Last point. Last point. It means that it has the redemptive in history. That's the main idea. It has the monopolizing filter. What does that mean? Monopoly means it takes over everything. So this means that the cross of Christ has a monopoly on you needing to filter every aspect of your life and every day based upon the work of Jesus Christ. That's what I mean when I say monopolizing filter. Basically, like, you now have glasses as a Christian that, are, that have one purpose. You know what your, your Christian glasses mean? Your IMAX glasses, you know, what, you, know what, you know what they're for? How do I see everything in life in light of the work of Jesus redeeming me in history? Let me give you some examples. You know, I hope, I hope uh, I'm going to jump around a lot of texts, but I just want to give you the point. Every, everyone's looking for wisdom, right? I need wise living, wise what? You, know what? you know what God says about the gospel? All the treasures of wisdom are hidden in Christ. You want to know how to live your life? You need to understand what it means to be saved by somebody else, not because of you, and what it means to live in light of that person. Or how about this? Man, there's so, much, there's so much racially tense situation. There's racism, racism in Miami, racism on the news, white supremacists, wackos. Like, how do we deal with that? 
Well, I'll tell you how we don't deal with that. Racism is bad. No, you don't. Let me show you how. Ephesians 2.14. For he is our peace who made both groups one and toward, talking about Jew and Gentile, two different cultures and races, tore down the dividing wall of hostility where in his flesh, in the gospel, in the cross, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and express and regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross. How do we deal with racism? By the power of the gospel telling every race that you have nothing in your race, no virtue, no bragging, no boasting at all. But every race has only boasting in the power of the gospel. That squashes all this racial superiority. The gospel does that. Not you threatening people to not be racist. Again, let me give you another one. How about about spiritual warfare? How do we engage in spiritual warfare? You know... You read Ephesians 6, you know what every piece, every piece is about? The gospel. Put on the helmet of what? Salvation. My mind must be brought into the fact that Jesus credited me with his righteousness and he covered me with his sin-canceling death. Take the shield of what? Faith in what? Faith in my shield-bearing? No. Faith in the work of Christ. Or... Put on the breastplate of righteousness. What righteousness? His righteousness. Spiritual warfare. How about persecution? I encourage you. Read the, read the, read the book of First Peter. You know, what, you know what First Peter does? Peter preaches the gospel to persecuted Christians to help them in their persecution. All over the place. How about marriage? How are we going to... What's the hope for marriage? Better communication? Is that your hope? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to present her to himself, spotless and blameless. The gospel. Or, here's another one. How, are you, how, you know, how do we understand the Holy Spirit's work? What does the Holy Spirit do? Jesus says he will Take the things that are mine, the things about what I do in the cross, and he will manifest them to you. What's the Holy Spirit about? Am I cutting out here? Or what about, here, let me give you a few more examples. Actually, I'm going to give you a lot more examples because I'm, I'm only at 40 minutes, so you know. Uh, sanctification. All this talk about sanctification. How, how are you going to improve in holiness? Well, I tell you how it's not going to be. You should be more holy. Man, I see your life, man. You whack. Are you even a Christian? Why don't you get serious about God? No, no, no. That's not how it happens. Paul in Romans 6, he's asked a question. Should we be more wretched and bad that grace may abound? You know what Paul says? Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, so our body of sin might be done away with. Paul begins to preach the cross for us to then bring us to change. Same thing uh, that you see all throughout Scripture. Here's another one. What about worship? What's worship about? Oh, worship is about me loving you, me rejoicing before you, me dancing before you, me crying before you, right? No, no, no. Paul, Paul says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ, the word about Christ, the word about the cross of Christ dwell richly among you. And in Revelation 5, what, what, what's, what's worship in Revelation Worthy is our hearts that are submitted to you forever and evermore. How much we love you, Jesus. No. Worthy is the lamb that was slain for us. Worship is all about the gospel. Sanctification is all about the gospel. You want, you want some more? Yeah. All right, man. I got plenty. You know, I got all these things. In. How about purity? Purity. Oh, man, purity. You know, I, Listen. I was talking to a pastor one time, and uh, this is recently, and I was like, I asked him a question. I was like, what are you going to do to the new convert who's struggling with temptation? There's kids here, so you, you know what I mean, right? All right? What are you going to do with the person struggling with temptation? 
He says, well, I'm going to, first of all, I'm going to see if he's even a Christian. And then I'm going to tell him how, you know, me saving myself for marriage left in all these blessings. I'm like, are you kidding me? You think that's going to keep someone pure? Taunting around your morality and then questioning if they're a Christian because they sin? Let me give you, let me give you a gospel answer. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Therefore, dear friends, since we have such promises, what promises? I love you, I redeemed you, I bought you by my blood. That promise. Since we have such promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity. You see that? How do I cleanse myself from the impurity? Because I have promises of unconditional, unilateral affection from my Savior. How about, you know, oh, man, humility, like, man, let's be humble. How do we be humble? You know, you know, what, you know how God helps us be humble in, in Philippians? You know what he does? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. And when he was found in likeness of man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. God's like, you want to be humble? Look at you being rescued by God becoming man and dying on a cross. That will humble you. Or how about service? Oh, you know, how are we going to serve? How about, I, I, let me tell you how you don't do it. Church, you need to serve here in this church. If you're not serving in this church, you know, like, your life is going to be this. And if you're not, you know, that's not, listen, listen, listen. Hebrews chapter 9. The blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience. What cleanses our conscience? The blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What, what, what propels me to serve God Almighty is that my conscience and my wretchedness has been cleansed by the power of the gospel. I want to serve, not because you're screaming at me about serving, but because Christ has served me and covered me in a sea of his blood. One more? But yes has got less that time. I'll give you two more. I'll give you three. I'll give you three more. Oh man, we gotta obey God, right? Obey, obey. Hebrews eleven. By faith, Abraham obeyed. Oh, we need peace, right? How am I gonna have peace? Oh, you know, I gotta forgive myself, and you know, I gotta fix this. I know. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How do I have peace in my life? I get this verdict from the gospel that says you are perfect because of Christ. You are forgiven because of Christ. That gives us peace. Or how about submission? You know, I, I, I meet Christians so often, and then the solution to everything is submission. Great. How do I submit? When God tells me, give my all, you know what I, you know, you know what my heart thinks? I don't want to. I don't want to give my all. So great surrender is a plea over and over again. But how do I do that? Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you by the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? All the gospel riches of being saved by Christ and the Holy Spirit applying it. By the mercies of God. I urge you to present your body a living sacrifice. How do I present my body a living sacrifice? It's by the mercies of God just overwhelming me and drowning me and just making me overwhelmed with how merciful God is towards me in spite of me that brings me to submit and let go of my hands. I'll give you one more. How about perseverance? How are we going to persevere? Well, if you don't persevere, you're not a Christian. All right, I'm done. Holler, holler at your boy. If that's it, let us run the race with endurance. How? Fixing. Hold up, hold up. What, what was that? Fixing? No, I thought I said glancing. I thought I said, you know, all right, I see you, Jesus. Now I'm, I don't know. Fixing my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. The way we persevere is taking our eyes off ourselves and our perseverance and looking, fixing our eyes on the glory of Christ for us. We have one way to look at reality, and that is through Christ's work conquering every aspect of reality. 
That's what I mean when I say monopolizing filter. So when I say reformed means that we're about the redemption of Christ in history, you, you, you feel me now? We about the gospel accomplished in history, proclaimed, emphasized, you know, applied all over the place. That's what it means. Not we read some guy who wrote some book 500 years ago and we say, yeah, that's what it means. So listen, you know what, you know what our problem t- is today is? Our problem today is, is we, 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 we like blogs, we like newspaper, we like Facebook tweets and, you know, like Facebook posts, right? That, we, we, want every, we, we want everything in separated snippets, right? Oh, uh, you know, but beloved, I, I think we need to stop being adults and go back to being kids who just are into stories. What story? Story of God sending Jesus Christ, sending him into history to become a man, a true man. And that story of that man who was a baby, who cried, who was, you know, experienced all the limitations of humanity. He lived a life of obedience as a man for us. And that story tells us that he went to the cross of Calvary for his people, for all of their sins, and he took every ounce of punishment from his father for every single one of all of God's people's sins. And on the cross, he said, it is finished. He was buried in a tomb of a rich man. He was raised three days later. And that story tells us that that man who was raised for our salvation is now in heaven interceding for us. That's what we need to be about. The story, we need to go back to being kids. And stop being all these adults. We're all about the disconnected facts everywhere. We need to go back to being little kids who just are about the story. So this is the first piece that I will build on to all the other pieces. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that this story would rock all of our stories that are just disappointing, that all of our stories that are depressing and sad would be absorbed into this story of salvation that you accomplished thousands of years ago, and you invite us, you invite us now to enter into your story and say, that's my story. When Christ obeyed, that was my obedience. When Christ died, that was my death. When he was raised, that was my resurrection. You invite us here in this moment to embrace and say the story of the gospel is my story. And put aside all our lesser stories, which just make us miserable and and just cold, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. That concludes our message, and we hope that you were inspired by it. If you'd like to hear more about the gospel or find out more about Reconciled Church Miami, please connect with us using one of the ways listed on our website, reconciledchurchmiami.org.